1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering, James Blind is producing. Today we're going to talk with uh, Brett McCracken. He's the author of Uncomfortable, the Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community, helping us to think through how we choose a church and why we stay in one that's, well, a little less comfortable than perhaps we uh, had hoped. We'll get into uh, that later in the 5 o'clock hour. But in this first hour, we want to cover much of the news from over the last several days. Well, President Trump today exited a White House meeting with Senator Mitch McConnell, saying his relationship with the Senate Majority Leader is better than ever. And they're working together on major legislative priorities, including tax and health care reform. We've been friends for a long time, the president said at the Rose Garden press conference following his meeting with uh, McConnell, with whom he had a public falling out this summer. We're fighting for big tax cuts, he said. My relationship with this gentleman has been outstanding, end quote. Well, that must have come as something of a shock to Mitch McConnell, who was standing right next to him. Well, Trump also said they were working on a measure to repeal and replace Obamacare by early next year. We have the same agenda. We talk all the time, said uh, McConnell himself. Uh, he said the meeting also included discussions about judicial appointments, additional hurricane relief funding. We are together totally on this agenda to move America forward, end quote. Well, McConnell's office earlier this week portrayed the White House meeting as a pro forma discussion about Republicans' legislation, a rather legislative agenda through the fall, which would include bid ticket items like tax reform, immigration, and perhaps revisiting health care reform. The meeting, however, was also the first real face-to-face the leaders have uh, had since the Uh, their public rift over the summer after the Republican-controlled Senate failed to give uh, the president his first major legislative victory by repealing and replacing Obamacare. Trump in August said he was very disappointed in Mitch, that's in quotes, after uh, McConnell said the president had excessive expectations about the legislative process. Well, a McConnell spokesperson said on Sunday that the senator's meeting with the president also Would include discussion on completing a budget resolution, confirming qualified judicial and other nominees and considering hurricane relief funding. Trump and McConnell spent a considerable amount of time during their uh, uh, roughly 30 minute press conference talking about each uh, judicial uh, or rather such judicial nominations. Uh, McConnell called Trump um, getting Justice Neil Gorsuch on the high court the single most important thing the president has done. Trump argued Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer and his group are holding up every single nomination, which he called beyond comprehension. Trump also hinted at pressing an economic development plan in the near future in a wide ranging press conference in which he also said NFL players should be. Suspended for sitting during the national anthem, and he taunted the 2016 presidential rival Hillary Clinton on the possibility of a rematch, saying, please run again. The meeting came as conservative groups and former Trump chief political strategist Steve Bannon uh, are pressuring McConnell and other congressional Republicans to relinquish their leadership posts. This is our war, Bannon said on Saturday at a gathering of religious conservatives. The establishment started it. You are all going to finish it he said. Well, Ken Cuccinelli, a former Virginia attorney general who now leads the Senate Conservative Fund, said on Wednesday on Capitol Hill, uh we call on all five members of the GOP Senate leadership to step down and for their caucus to remove them as soon as possible. Meanwhile, Senate Republicans appear to be rallying around McConnell in an opposite move. Mitch McConnell uh is not the problem, said Senator Lindsey Graham on Sunday. Our problem is that we promised to repeal and replace Obamacare and we failed. We promised to cut taxes and we have yet to do that. Well GOP Senate uh Senator Susan Collins, a moderate from Maine, who is uh, critical, uh, no vote in the health care, said that Americans are tired of Banyan-like uh, rhetoric. They don't want this hyper-partisanship, she said. Mitch McConnell is the senator, Senate majority leader. The president needs him. And I'm glad uh, they're working together on tax reform and a lot of other issues. And I'm glad they're meeting this week. Now, some suggested this press conference was, in fact, uh, sending a message to Banyan, who, who uh a witness the president standing next to Mitch McConnell. In August, Trump tweeted, Can you believe that Mitch McConnell, who has screamed repeal and replace for seven years, couldn't get it done, must repeal and replace Obamacare? McConnell responded to Trump's Twitter barrage by saying the challenge of governing shouldn't be a surprise. A lot of people look at all that uh, uh, and find it frustrating, messy. Well, welcome to the democratic process, McConnell said at a GOP event in Kentucky this summer. That's the way it is in our country. Uh, schooling the president on the process of making uh, the sausage uh, out in public. Well, as I mentioned, one irony in Washington these days is that a press corps that claims to loathe right-wing political operative Steve Bannon can't get enough of him. The media broadcast his every utterance cheering on his declaration of civil war against Republicans in Congress. That meets the narrative that they would like to promote Republican Senator Lindsey Graham captured that reality on CBS's Space the Nation on Sunday when he said, you're going to ask me about Banyan, aren't you? So, so I'm just going to uh, just go and ask uh, and ask myself. And he replied by giving Republicans good advice on how to defeat Mr. Banyan, uh, his uh, Mercer family financier and Breitbart campaign operation. Yes. So what's going on? Mr. Graham asked. It's a symptom of a greater problem. If we don't cut taxes and we don't eventually repeal and replace Obamacare, then we're going to lose across the board in the House in 2018. And all of my colleagues running in primaries in 2018 will probably get beat. It will be the end of Majority Leader Mitch McConnell as we know it, end quote. Well, the host teed up Mr. McConnell, but Mr. Graham elaborated, Mitch McConnell is not our problem. Our problem is that we promised to repeal and replace Obamacare. We failed. We promised to cut taxes. We haven't done that yet. If we're successful, Mitch McConnell is fine. If we're not, we're all in trouble. We lose our majority, and I think President Trump will not get reelected, end quote. Well, that's exactly right. Mr. Banyan is recruiting carpetbaggers and multiple... Uh, race losers, but uh, uh, they'll have a chance if Republicans can't deliver on their campaign promises, and that is the face-off that we saw at least a a portion of earlier today as the president and uh, uh, Mitch McConnell uh, teed off in a rather lengthy press conference in which the president stayed and for about 40 minutes, 45 minutes, answered every question Uh, That was put to him. Well, the Trump administration announced on Thursday night last week that it will cease making payments to a subsidy that helps moderate to low-income individuals purchase Obamacare health insurance plans. The U.S. government cannot lawfully continue making the cost-sharing reduction payments that help prop up the Affordable Care Act, the White House announced in its statement. President Trump, his decision to nix the payments comes after several months of flirting with the idea. Now it's been done. The bailout of insurance companies through these unlawful payments is yet another example of how the previous administration abused taxpayer dollars and skirted the law to prop up a broken system, the White House said in a statement announcing its decision, Congress needs to repeal and replace this disastrous Obamacare law and provide real relief to the American people. End quote. Well, Trump has considered eliminating the cost sharing reduction payments on several occasions, but decided to pull back while an impending lawsuit filed against the president's predecessor in 2014 made its way through the courts. Lawmakers filed suit against the administration, previous administration at the time, claiming it was illegally uh, reimbursing marketplace insurers for cost sharing reduction payments. Former House Speaker John Boehner and other Republican leaders argue that cost sharing reduction payments require congressional approval. Congress had never explicitly appropriated the funds for those payments, they argued, which made the administration's uh, actions unconstitutional. Well, after nearly two years of deliberation, a federal district court concluded the House's claim had legal standing and allowed the case to move forward in May of 2016. Trump's decision to nix the cost-sharing reduction payments comes after he signed an executive order on Thursday afternoon to begin formulating an approach to allow small businesses to join together across state lines to purchase coverage through what uh, are known as association health plans. The executive order also expands access to short-term coverage plans that don't comply with Obamacare requirements. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part today by Zero Res. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Twenty one minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, despite Republicans inability to repeal or replace Obamacare, President Trump and some conservative leaders haven't given up on calling for renewed efforts to repeal or reform the law or replace. Uh, There appears to be widespread agreement among congressional Republicans that moving on from Obamacare is bad policy and bad politics. That's a quote from Dan Holler. He's the vice president of Heritage Action for America as the lobbying affiliate of the Heritage Foundation. He says the Trump administration agrees Republicans could adopt another budget resolution next year that provides reconciliation instructions to repeal and ultimately replace Obamacare. Well, Senate, uh, on Twitter rather, Trump has been vocal about his intentions to continue reforming health care. Senate Republicans attempted to use a procedure known as budget reconciliation to dismantle the law because they would need only 51 votes to pass a bill with Vice President Mike Pence uh, able to break the tie, but they weren't able to pull that off. On the 28th of July, Senate um, in the Senate vote, three Republicans, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Susan Collins of Maine, and John McCain of Arizona, blocked what lawmakers dubbed the skinny repeal of Obamacare. The conservative Senate aide told the Daily Signal in an email that the law could be repealed next year. The most likely chance for Obamacare repeal right now is for tax reform to pass this winter, pass a new budget resolution in the spring and then repeal Obamacare next summer, the aide said, rather optimistically. Well, Trump tweeted on Tuesday that he would be using his executive powers to address Obamacare regulations. The president was expected to sign an executive order on Thursday, which he did, that would permit small businesses or individuals to join force to purchase health insurance plans sold across state lines. Um, And uh, the fact that the uh, repeal and replace or some form of uh, alteration is still on the table, at least among conservatives, says that this is going to be back up Uh, for an issue to be debated at some point in the not-too-distant future, meaning before his term ends. Well, it was easy to miss it during a hectic week, but on Thursday last week, the United States announced its withdrawal from the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. And Some uh, some are saying good riddance. In 2011, the U.S. substantially cut funding to UNESCO— the organization granted the Palestinian Authority full membership, but while Barack Obama asked Congress to restore funding, the Trump administration has taken the um, uh, the opposite next step. UNESCO's embrace of the Palestinians in 2011 was... Well, par for the course, an organization that is a dependable opponent of Israel. In 2012, UNESCO declared the Church of the Nativity to be a World Heritage Site in danger, ignoring ignoring rather, the objections of the United States, Israel, and the three churches that presided over it. That was a victory for the Palestinians, who claim Bethlehem as their own, and say that Israel endangers the site. The next year, the organization's executive board issued six condemnations of Israel and honored Che Guevara, the communist mercenary, It announced in 2016 that the Temple Mount had no connection to Judaism, referring to it only as the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The Wailing Wall became the Baruch Plaza and Israel the occupying power in Jerusalem. UNESCO's stated mission is to promote peace and security, but in practice... It is just another international institution given shelter to the world's ugliest ideas. It was never appropriate for the United States to support UNESCO, so long as it remained a nakedly political lobby, which it has become. That's something Ronald Reagan understood way back in 1984. He withdrew the U.S. from UNESCO back then when the group led by um, a uh, Amadou uh Mabow, was not just political anti-israel as well as pro-soviet but corrupt american diplomat vernon walters was fond of pointing that uh, pointing out rather that the paris based organization spent 80% of its budget on ritzy 16th um, um arrondissement I'm not really sure what that is. Uh, Reagan's uh, decision to leave prompted UNESCO to intact, enact rather reforms. And in 2002, the Bush administration decided to rejoin. But any reforms have proven temporary, and UNESCO's return to its old ways is justification enough for the decision made by the Trump administration. Withdrawing makes fiscal and moral sense. Since the United States cut off funding to the organization, we've been uh, accruing hundreds of millions of dollars in debt to the group. Critics of uh, the decision by the president have tended to ignore or UNESCO's contemptible political and uh, and other uh, activities and emphasize its other initiatives which include literacy programs and environmental con- conversation but if those programs are jeopardized by the lack of u.s support you know UNESCO has uh, none but itself to blame perhaps uh, this move like that of uh, Reagan in 1984 will lead to reforms albeit temporary a State department official sounded a hopeful note telling the Washington Post that pulling out sends a strong message that we need to see fundamental reform but opposing Israel and standing against human human. Human rights seems to be in the organization's genes. On Thursday, the UNESCO Director General called the U.S. withdrawal a loss for the fight against violent extremism. This form, uh, a group that gives harbor to anti Israel extremists and honors Che uh, Guevara. UNESCO, not the United States, is on the wrong side of that fight, and at least for now, the United States is not in uh, associating with the organization. Tomorrow, we'll see what happens, as this is a cycle we have seen. Before, Well, Congress was warned on Thursday that the North Koreans uh, are capable of attacking the United States today with a nuclear EMP, a bomb that could indefinitely shut down the electric power grid and kill 90 percent of all Americans within a year. Well, this was at a House hearing in which experts said the North Koreans could easily um, employ the doomsday scenario uh, to turn parts of the United States to ashes, which is something of an overstatement. We're talking about the power grid. In calling on the Pentagon and President Trump to uh, move quickly to protect the grid, the experts testified that an explosion of a high altitude nuclear bomb delivering, delivered rather by a missile or satellite could uh, be to shut down the United States electrical power grid for an indefinite period. Uh, Leading to the deaths within a year of up to 90% of all Americans. I'm not following that connection, but that's a quote. Two members of the former congressional EMP Electromagnetic Pulse, by the way, commission said that the threat to the United States has never been higher, in part because of the current high level of saber-rattling by both sides and North Korea's surprising display over the past six months of its ability to deliver on its threats. With the development of small nuclear arsenal and long-range missiles by new radical U.S. adversaries beginning with North Korea... The threat of a nuclear EMP attack against the United States becomes one of the few ways that such a country could uh, inflict devastating damage on the country. It is critical, therefore, that the United States national leadership address the EMP threat as a critical and existential issue and give a high priority to assuring the leadership is engaged and uh, the necessary steps are taken to protect the country from EMP, the experts told the House Homeland Security Uh, Subcommittee, William Graham, who's the chairman of the former EMP commission and its former chief of staff, Peter Vincent Pry, said that the U.S. has ignored the warning signs for years and that North Korea's military moves this year must be seen as a wake up call. They said, and I'm quoting just six months ago, most experts thought North Korean nuclear arsenal was primitive. Some academics claiming it had a few as few as six A-bombs. Now the intelligence community repeatedly estimates that North Korea has 60 nuclear weapons. Just six months ago, most experts thought North Korea's ICBMs were fake or, if real, could not strike the U.S. mainland. Now the intelligence community reportedly estimates that North Korea's ICBMs can strike Denver and Chicago and perhaps the entire U.S. Just six months ago, most experts thought North Korea was many years away from an H-bomb. Now it appears North Korea has H-bombs comparable to sophisticated U.S. two-stage thermonuclear weapons. And just six months ago, most experts claimed North Korea's ICBMs could not miniaturize an A-bomb or design a reentry vehicle for missile delivery. Now the intelligence community reportedly assesses North Korea has miniaturized nuclear weapons and has developed reentry vehicles for missile delivery, including by ICBMs that can strike the U.S. And after massive intelligence failures, grossly underestimating North Korea's long-range missile capability, number of, mi- of nuclear weapons, warheads, miniaturization, and proximity to an H-bomb. The biggest North Korean threat to the United States remains unacknowledged nuclear EMP attack. Well, their testimony also highlighted the failure of the Pentagon or Congress to extend the life of the EMP Commission, and they recommended deeper study into the threat, including from a simple solar flare. Our current vulnerability invites attack, they said. Again, Congress has been warned. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 36 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. In the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Brett McCracken. He is the author of Uncomfortable, the awkward and essential challenge of Christian community. He'll join us uh, later in our second hour. Well, Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl pled guilty Monday at Fort Bragg and to charges he endangered comrades by walking away from his post in Afghanistan in 2009. The court case wrapping up three years after a stunning Rose Garden spectacle in which former President Obama, flanked by Bergdahl's parents, triumphantly announced the soldier's release from captivity. I understand that leaving was against the law, said Bergdahl, whose decision to walk off his remote post in Afghanistan in 2009 prompted intense search and recovery mission during which some of his uh, comrades were seriously wounded and other soldiers died. At the time, I had no intention of causing search and recovery operations, Bergdahl said. But he added he now understood that his decision prompted efforts to find him. Well, Bergdahl uh, told the judge uh, that he left his post because he had issues with his command and was trying to travel to another base to notify them, a claim that has been disputed in uh, in the past by former platoon mate, he added he got lost after 20 minutes and was captured hours later. The misbehavior charge carries a maximum penalty of life in prison, while the desertion charge is punishable by up to five years behind bars. Bergdahl also claimed today that he escaped around 12 to 15 times while he was being held by the Taliban, with one instance lasting eight days until he was recaptured by his captors. It wasn't immediately clear whether his defense had conceded that he's responsible for the long chain of events that his desertion uh, prompted, which included many decisions by others on how to conduct the searches. Despite his plea, the prosecution and the defense have not agreed to a stipulation of facts, uh, said one of his lawyers, Major Orrin Gleick. Uh, speaking to the Associated Press, another one of Bergdahl's lawyers uh, was uh, unprepared to uh, give comment, but said that Bergdahl, who was released on, the tw- on in May, rather, of 2014, was a highly criticized uh, deal in which five Taliban terrorists were set free. And these were, uh, again... Um, folks who had positions of, of leadership and authority. At the time, the Obama administration official said Bergdahl had served with honor and distinction, end quote. Well, the U.S. Army said Bergdahl asked to enter his plea before the military judge. Obama was criticized by Republicans in 2014, Taliban prisoner swap that brought Bergdahl home, while President Donald Trump harshly criticized Bergdahl on the campaign trail. His punishment won't be known until after the judge, Army Colonel Jeffrey Nance, uh, holds the sentencing hearing that's expected to start on the 23rd of this month. Bergdahl, who's from Haley, Idaho, previously chose to have his case heard by a judge alone rather than a jury. Serious wounds to uh, service members who search for Bergdahl are expected to play a role in his sentencing. And while guilty pleas would allow him to avoid a trial, he still faces uh, uh, he'd still face a sentencing hearing in late October. Bergdahl's five years of captivity by the Taliban and its allies also will likely play a role in what punishment he receives. Those five years being considered at least some form of punishment. At one point during his captivity, he converted to Islam, fraternized openly with his captors and declared himself uh, Mujahid, um, uh, Mujahid, a warrior for Islam. Um, According to media reports, citing secret documents prepared on the basis of a purported eyewitness account, the reports indicate that Bergdahl's uh, relations with his uh, terrorist network captors morphed over time from periods of hostility where he was treated very hostage to periods where, as one source uh, says he became much more of an accepted fellow than a popular, uh, popularly understood. Uh, he even reportedly was allowed to carry a gun at times. Well, Bergdahl also collected contact information and talked about becoming a mercenary, uh, in what his squad mates described as behavior that led to the ground, uh, laid rather the groundwork for his disappearance. He was apparently high with the small, a group of, um, of Afghan soldiers when they were picked up by uh, nomads in 2009, according to a former CIA operative who was running a network of informants on the ground at the time. The former CIA operative uh, says that Bergdahl was captured along with others and sold to the uh, network in Pakistan within four days. Well, legal scholars have said several pretrial rulings against the defense uh, have given prosecutors leverage to pursue stiff punishment against Bergdahl, the Associated Press is reporting. Perhaps most uh, significant was the judge's decision in June to allow evidence of serious wounds to service members who searched for Bergdahl at the sentencing phase. The judge ruled a Navy SEAL and an Army National Guard sergeant wouldn't have uh, wound up in separate fire f- that left them wounded if they hadn't been searching for Bergdahl. We, made, uh, we may as well go back to kangaroo courts and lynch mobs, says Bergdahl, in and- response response um, that got uh, what they wanted uh, he was speaking at British filmmaker in two thousand and sixteen when asked about those uh, the people who want to hang me you 're need to convince those people he said end quote well the defense attorneys by the way that 's not on the attorneys have acknowledged Bergdahl uh, walked off base without authorization. Bergdahl himself told a general during the preliminary investigation that he left intending to cause alarm and draw attention to what uh, he saw as problems with his unit. He was soon captured, and the uh, sentencing phase will come later this month. Meanwhile, a New Jordan was uh, convicted today of planting two pressure cooker bombs on New York City streets, including one that injured 30 people with the rain of shrapnel. When it detonated in a bustling neighborhood on a night last summer, the ver- after a two-week trial of Akhman uh, Rahimi, nine of Afghanistan, a man living in Elizabeth, uh, just outside New York, the charges including using a weapon of mass destruction and bombing a public place, carrying the maximum punishment uh, of life in prison. Prosecutors say he himself can- a soldier in a holy war against Americans. And was inspired by the Islamic State terror group and Al Qaeda to carry out the late summers in New York and New Jersey. His crimes of hate have been uh, swift and resolute justice," said the acting U.S. Attorney uh, June Kim, and uh, in a statement saying that just over a year after his attack and following a, a fair and open trial, Rahimi now stands convicted of his crimes of terror by a unanimous jury of New Yorkers. Well, in his closing argument, Assistant U.S. Attorney. Uh, email of both uh, described an unusually large amount of evidence that pointed to the defendant, including his fingerprints and DNA uh, being found on the bomb on September 17th for that attack. Dozens of videos tracked his movements as he dragged the bombs and suitcases through the Manhattan streets. They also captured the explosion at 23rd Street in the Chelsea neighborhood that injured 30 people. The second bomb planted on city streets didn't detonate, uh, but were intended Uh, to not only detonate, but injure those nearby. Well, as a bomb squad investigator testified, prosecutors showed jurors a a mangled waist-high trash bin that was sent flying 120 feet across a busy street by the bomb. Federal prosecutors called it a miracle that nobody was killed by the explosive, which scattered ball bearings meant to serve as shrapnel. And it wasn't enough, Bove said jurors Uh, could look at a small notebook that was uh, on him at the time when he was uh, arrested two days after the attack following a shootout with police in New Jersey. The prosecutor said that he had written words provided uh, a confession of uh, as he took responsibility for the bombings in a claim of credit uh, for attacks that left him feeling proud. The 29-year-old still faces charges in New Jersey related to the shootout. He's pled not guilty to attempted murder of uh, police officers, uh, but that will follow the closure of this trial. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to talk with uh, author Brett McCracken later in the 5 o'clock hour. His book is titled Uncomfortable, The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community. And he focuses primarily on um, how we... How we settle into a church community, what we look for, what our priorities are, and whether or not we are focused on the right things. Uncomfortable, the awkward and essential challenge of Christian community.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Forty nine minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, after six weeks of trial, the government rested in its bribery case last week against Senator Bob Menendez, a Democrat out of New Jersey who faces more than a dozen charges of fraud and bribery. And despite the defense's objections, a federal judge refused to throw out the case. Menendez is accused of accepting donations, trips and gifts in exchange uh, from an eye doctor friend in exchange for uh, pressuring government officials to act in ways that would be beneficial to his friend's business interests. Menendez has maintained his innocence and U.S. District Judge William Wallace had a, uh, a rather William Walls uh, had a had to decide rather if he would dismiss the case using a 2016 Supreme Court ruling, which outlined a stricter definition of what an official act is. Well, the defense argued that the allegations against Menendez did not meet the narrow definition. Well, Walls said today that the case would continue, seen as a huge win for prosecutors. The defense will not start its uh. Uh, will uh, not start its case. It's the first time in nine years that a sitting U.S. senator is facing federal bribery charges. Menendez is 63. He's accused of a plethora of campaign donations, gift and vacations from uh, a Florida ophthalmologist in return. Uh, allegedly, Menendez used his position to lobby on behalf of uh, the business interests of his friends. Melgen um, uh, allegedly directed more than seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in campaign contributions to entities that supported Menendez. That's the ophthalmologist, according to his uh, indictment, which prosecutors said were uh, indictments to get Menendez to use the or rather inducements to get Menendez to use his influence on uh, the behalf of his friend. Well, prosecutors have also accused him of trying to hide the gifts. Um, his ophthalmologist friend Melgen also paid for Menendez and his girlfriend to stay for three nights at a Parisian hotel where rooms typically cost about $1,500 per night and allowed the senator to use his private jet. A uh, federal prosecutor said that the senator sold his office for a lifestyle that he couldn't afford. Well, the indictments also allege that Menendez pressured State Department officials to give visas to three young women described as his um, uh, his friend's girlfriend's. Uh, And Throughout the uh, trial thus far, defense attorneys have sought to prove that Menendez and Melgin uh, have been friends since before the former became the senator. And the trips were nothing more than friends traveling together at times emotional. Menendez has maintained his innocence throughout the trial. And of course, here in the United States, you are innocent, presumed innocent until proven guilty. And the process will continue. By the way, um, it was denied that Menendez requests that the trial be uh, recessed during Uh, critical Senate votes, stating that his job should not be treated differently from that of uh, a construction worker or a cab driver. So the judge will not allow uh, recess of the trial so that he can conduct his business as a sitting U.S. senator. The trial was also focused on a meeting former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid set up with Menendez and former Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius to discuss a nearly $9 million Medicaid billing dispute that may Uh, figure prominently in this case and may also implicate uh, the former senator who set that meeting up. Again, the trial will move forward. The judge deciding today, announcing that that uh, trial will move forward. It will not be dismissed. Well, the upcoming Supreme Court case um, uh, will revisit the 40-year-old ruling that created public sector unions as we know them today. Janus versus American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, Council 31, officially on the high court's docket as the uh, late la- as of late last month we'll answer a couple of existential questions for ask me and uh, SEIU and the American Federation of Teachers questions left wide open by the court's landmark 19- 1977 decision rather abood versus detroit board of education that allowed public unions to require agency fees from all workers whether they belong to the union or not Are public labor unions ever really apolitical with uh, with, what 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 with their workers salaries being billed to the taxpayer? One of the questions. And if a majority of justices can agree this year that asked me uh, at all are innately political. Doesn't demanding dues from workers, members, and non-members like violate the First Amendment as any forced political donation would? Well, Abood gave labor unions license to demand dues to cover activities like wage and benefit negotiations. Otherwise, the Burger Court decided non-members would reap the rewards of collective bargaining without paying their fair share, in quotes. Well, the dues demanded uh, a non-member uh, are indeed called a fair share fee. Well, newer cases like Janice uh, and Frederick's versus California Teachers Association before it, which ended in a stalemate following Scalia's death, dispute Abood on the grounds that union dues paid as a condition of employment constitute compelled speech. Well, Abood's ruling required that funds filched from or taken from required uh, from non-members not su- uh, support the union's political activities, but as the intervening 40 years have illustrated, Everything a public sector union does, from its continued existence to its ample fundraising for sympathetic candidates, is tangled up in electoral politics. Well, brave souls who've taken the uh, public sec- sector union on, most notably Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, like uh, to cite labor-friendly Franklin D. Roosevelt's PolitiFact-accredited position on the matter of whether public sector and unions belong to the same breed? Uh, or rather belong in the same breath. Well, all government employees should realize that the process of collective bargaining, as usually understood, cannot be transplanted into the public service, FDR wrote in a uh, letter to the president of the National Federation of Public Employees, some years ago, ago, of course. It has its distinct and insurmountable limitations when applied to public personnel management. He wrote, "Will public employees, a subset of the citizenry that Multiplied during his presidency, can't exactly negotiate with their employers, Roosevelt added. The employer is the whole people who speak by means of laws enacted by their representatives in Congress. Accordingly, administrative officials and employees alike are governed and guided and in many instances restricted by laws which establish policies, procedures or rules in personnel matters. Well, with the overturn of Abood being imminent, the vast political machine, precisely what Roosevelt worried we'd um, give life to, uh, fears for its survival. The proportion of Democratic funding extracted from public unions since the 70s, the late 70s, makes their solvency essentially a status quo party operation. Obama overturned the last Bush administration's transparency rules for public unions, providing cover for their political spending. But five years ago, an indispensable investigation by The Wall Street Journal, extrapolated from Bush-era data that organized labor's political spending is quadruple the common estimate, all of which only supports Janus, the case before the Supreme Court, animating argument that compulsory non-member dues impose political speech, On we, the people's employees, and as FDR pointed out, on us, the people. Again, the Supreme Court will take this case up. Uh, It is on its um, uh, docket as of late last month, and it's going to answer a couple of those existential questions. It will be very interesting to see. Um, How they how they deal with them. Well, firefighters began gaining ground on wildfires that killed at least 41 people in the past weeks. The deadliest blaze in California's history. Winds eased up a bit. Searchers uh, combed charred ruins for more victims with hundreds still missing. The most destructive northern California fires were uh, more than half contained by Monday. Thank the Lord. And tens of thousands of residents who had fled the flames in Sonoma County were allowed to return to what were their homes north of San Francisco. More than 5,700 structures were destroyed by uh, more than a dozen wildfires that ignited a week ago and consumed an area larger than New York City. Entire neighborhoods in the city of Santa Rosa were reduced to ashes. The weather has improved from the high dry winds that they experienced last week, but there's still winds and high temperatures and high elevations. The California spokesperson uh, says even if the winds don't pick up, it's really uh, steep country and we could have some issues with embers flying across lines. We're not out of the woods yet. End quote. Well, Mendocino, county authorities said power company PG&E would begin. Uh, flying low in the county to uh, check lines and reestablish power. About 11,000 firefighters supported by air tankers and helicopters were battling blazes that have consumed more than 213,000 Acres. That's 86,200 hectares. About 50 search and rescue personnel backed by National Guard troops were uh, combing tens of thousands of charred acres in Sonoma County for bodies, the sheriff's spokesperson said. Uh, Once it's safe to go through, we'll search every structure. 22 people were killed in Sonoma County. 174 are still listed as missing, though the numbers dropped as more people checked in with authorities. The driver of a private water tender died in Napa County in a vehicle rollover on Monday. Evacuation orders were lifted for the picturesque Napa Valley Resort Town of uh, Calistoga, whose 5,000 whose, uh, 5, residents were ordered out by authorities about four days ago. Uh, in Redwood Valley, a scorched Mendocino County town of about 1,700 people, um, uh, as they sifted through what remains of uh, their homes, essentially rubble, there's been a lot of crying, a lot of emotion, says one homeowner. The mountain was on fire. Now they wonder, where do they go next? Uh, firefighters gained control of two of the deadliest fires in wine, uh, countries, Napa and Sonoma counties. The Tubbs fire, uh, were, with 70% contained and the Atlas fire with 68% contained, which alone was responsible for eight deaths in Mendocino County. That was extinguished by today. The 41 confirmed fatalities make the fires, uh, California's deadliest since record-keeping began, surpassing the 29 deaths from the Griffith Park fire in 1933 in Los Angeles. About 40,000 people remained displaced. At least a dozen Napa Valley, Valley and Sonoma County wineries were damaged or destroyed, throwing the state's industry and related tourism into disarray. And the question remains, where do they go from here? My guess is some We'll come to Oregon and Washington. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next, and in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Brett McCracken, author of Uncomfortable: The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. This hour, we're going to talk with Brett McCracken. He's the author of Uncomfortable, The Awkward and and Essential Challenge of Christian Community. Hope you'll stick around for that. He'll be with us in our next segment. Well, the Christian baker in Colorado, who was sued for declining to make a cake for a same-sex couple's wedding reception, received a strange request last month, design and bake a cake celebrating Satan's birthday. Hmm. Um, I would like to get a quote on a birthday cake for a special event, the email request to Baker Jap uh, Phillips uh, said. It was sent on the 30th of September and exclusively obtained. Uh, by the Daily Signal. It continued it is a cake that is religious in theme. And since religion is a protected class, I am hoping that you will gladly bake this cake. As you see, the birthday cake in question is to celebrate the birthday of Lucifer. And as they are also um, known who, um, uh, known Satan, who was born as Satan, When he was cast from heaven by God in quote, well, the request for Phillips to quote a price for the cake also asks him an upside down cross to put, uh, to be put on it under the head of crucifer or Lucifer rather. The incident exemplifies the complexity of government laws mandating that uh, these Those in creative occupations violate their religious beliefs in serving clients and customers. Well, this is a danger that lawyers for Phillips, owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop in Lakewood, Colorado, say they're raising before the U.S. Supreme Court when in June... Uh, they agreed to take the case of the baker. Well, Phillips gained nationwide attention, you might recall, after declining to make a wedding cake for the same-sex couple and eventually being found guilty of discrimination by a Colorado state agency and the courts. Well, Phillips uh, says that... Uh, uh His Christian faith not only doesn't allow him to design and make cakes celebrating same-sex unions, it prevents him from designing cakes that involve such elements as witchcraft or explicit sexuality. The request for Jack to make a cake celebrating Satan proves the danger of using some kinds of laws to, or these kinds of laws, to force people in the artistic profession to create artwork that violates their beliefs. Jeremy Tedesco, who's a senior counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom, representing uh, his client. Well, the request for from the Satanist is essentially the same as the request that Jack Phillips uh, received from the same sex couple to create a cake that violates his beliefs, because in both instances, the requester can say the law covers my request for the Satanists, They uh, they're going to say it's religious discrimination for you to say no to a cake. Uh, that I'm requesting because of my protected status. Well, Alliance Defending Freedom, a Christian legal organization, represents Phillips in this case. Lawyers say that uh, Phillips received a second Satan-themed cake request by phone this month, this time asking that Satan be depicted smoking a joint. The case dates um, to 2012 when the same-sex couple... Uh, got a marriage license in Massachusetts and asked Phillips to design and bake a cake for their reception back home in Colorado. Lawyers for Mullins and Craig, the couple who are represented by the American Civil Liberties Union, filed a complaint against Masterpiece Cake Shop with the state of Colorado, alleging that Phillips' refusal to make the cake violates the state's public accommodation law. Now, administrative law judge Robert Spencer ruled against Masterpiece Cake Shop back in December of 2013, concluding that Phillips discriminated against the couple because of their sexual orientation, Phillips' lawyers at Alliance Defending Freedom have appealed that ruling through the courts in Colorado and now to the u s Supreme Court. Phillips received the email request for the Satanist cake published in full below um, on the uh, the thirtieth of September. His lawyers would not comment on how Phillips handled that. Uh, that case, the the request rather may end up helping Phillips case rather than hurting the case, uh, his attorneys say, if we're going to live in a world where these kinds of laws can be used to force people like Jack Phillips to create cakes that violate his beliefs about marriage. We're also going to have to live in a world where people can be forced to create cakes celebrating Satan or whatever is contrary to and artists' uh, core beliefs. Oral arguments in the Supreme Court case, uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, are scheduled to uh, take place in December, with a decision expected sometime next year. We'll continue to follow that case. As it moves forward. Meanwhile, a Boise State University professor recently learned what happens when you challenge social narratives on college campuses. Scott Yenner, a tenured professor, has been under siege on campus after publishing articles about feminism and the transgender movement. In those articles, Yenner explained the similarity in philosophy between the early feminists and modern transgender movement and how they aim to undermine traditional family values. He wrote, transgender rights activists are seeking to abridge parental rights by elevating the independent choices of young children. Respecting the sexual and gender choices of uh, ever younger children erodes parental rights and, and compromises the integrity of the family as an independent unit. Well, in response, students, activists, and even staff members at Boise State are now waging a relentless campaign to get Yenner fired or shut down. A petition to have Yenner fired, which has now gained thousands of signatures, has been passed around on campus. Activists have posted flyers attacking him, and some have called for other faculty to come out and officially condemn him. Well, despite these calls, Boise State has said it will not fire Yenner, according to the college fix. That doesn't mean it's easy sailing for the professor, who continues to be lambasted and isolated. In an interview, Yenner uh, explained how the crusade against his work and others that challenged uh, the orthodoxy of the left on campus is undercut Free speech at our, at our colleges and universities. The result of the reaction to his work, Yenner said, is that there has been a very chilling effect. Uh, not only on my speech, but those who would speak in defense of me, both on the substance and on the principle of academic freedom. Well, the blowback came in earnest, according to Yenner. When the School of Public Service posted his article on its Facebook page, the dean received immediate negative reactions and anger from students and LGBT activists. The dean, Corey Cook, then posted a statement on Facebook saying that while Yenner had a right to publish, his work violated the university's aspirations of diversity and civility. Civility—that's an interesting choice of word in this case. Well, that didn't stop the waves of attacks that would uh, soon come upon uh, Yenner. Well, the campaign against him became a cause célèbre for the new student diversity and inclusion hire, Francisco Salinas. According to Yenner, in August, Salinas wrote an article condemning Yenner and and uh, tying his work to the recent events in Charlottesville and to Nazism. Wow, is that a stretch. And at an August 29th faculty senate meeting, Boise State Professor Lynn Lubomreski, or something like that said that while she believes in free expression, with an asterisk by it, she thinks that because the opinions expressed in the Daily Signal article, Yenner violated clear policies that govern our institution or statement of shared values. So there's only one value, and if you question its impact on the broader community that's uh, not allowed. She went on to say the State Board of Education policy regarding academic freedom and most important, our concern for our students whose uh, delicate natures might be challenged to think more deeply and uh, perhaps contrary to what they have uh, held to be true. Well, the majority of our university is made up of women and transgendered people. Uh, she went on to write Jenner's public statements published with the byline Boise State University professor of political science, a real violation of the rights of women and transgendered students. In which she said, when someone expresses bigoted, homophobic and misogynistic views as a representative of a university, I think that we do have a right and responsibility to at least make a statement that we do not share those values. So now his, uh, his challenge that the family is being undermined when younger and younger children are given the freedom. Uh, Apart from the supervision of their parents to make decisions about their gender, that is now considered bigoted, homophobic and misogynistic. Again, it's uh, broadened uh, considerably from his initial statements. Yenner published the Daily Signal article in August. He received a constant stream of criticism and calls for his work to be shut down. The position seems to be that anyone who would do research in areas that don't affirm the contemporary views should be shut down. Boise State student Ryan Orlando called for his school to part ways with Yenner in an article he penned uh, for Odyssey. There are are a multitude of morally reprehensible notions in Yenner's writing which constitute a dangerous ideology that warrants separation from the university. Now notice uh, they're not debating the, uh, the veracity of the argument, but simply saying it should not be allowed to be made at all. This is on the campus where the free exchange of ideas and debate is supposed to be championed, championed rather. There are a multitude of morally reprehensible notions, he says. And it is our belief, this hate speech. So now it's elevated to hate speech. Uh, this honest disagreement that challenges whether or not it's in the best interest of families or children. Um, this, in our belief, this hate speech and its alienation uh, is alienating a lot of folks at Boise State. I would say that perhaps the criticism of the actual original statement is probably elevating the, uh, the discomfort of students more than the original statement itself. But it is yet another example of the fact that uh, honest debate, honest disagreements, the free exchange of ideas is no longer welcome on college campuses. Sixteen minutes after five o'clock. Up next, we'll talk with Brett McCracken. Uncomfortable is the title of his book, The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey,
2: welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in our culture of have it your way consumerism, Christians like you and me often want to find our dream church, the one that checks off every item on a checklist and is comfortably. Perfect in terms of being a match. Well, in his latest book, "Uncomfortable: The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community," journalist and author Brett McCracken he tells readers why we need to give up the idea of our dream church and embrace the uncomfortable nature of the local church of you know fellowshipping and doing community together. The book is about the comforting gospel of Jesus Christ that leads us to live uncomfortable lives for Him. Mr. McCracken says that uh, it's about recovering a willingness to do hard things to embrace hard truths, to do life with hard people for the sake and the glory of the one who did the hardest thing. The book explores various uncomfortable aspects of becoming the church Jesus wants us to be. Uncomfortable shows readers why they should stop looking for the church that is the perfect fit, And instead, find the one that will teach them to live like Jesus. Well, Brett McCracken is the senior editor for Gospel Coalition and the author of Hipster Christianity and Gray Matters. He also writes regularly for Christianity Today and his website, brettmccracken.com. He lives uh, with his family in Southern California, where he serves as an elder at Southlands Church. He joins us today to talk about his book... The awkward and essential challenge of Christian community. Uncomfortable is that title. Brett McCracken, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
2: Well, this can be an uncomfortable subject. I know for lots of folks who are looking for a home church, it's natural to assume that we should have a checklist that appeals to us. The worship music is a style that we like. The age of the congregation is similar to our own. Maybe the culture of the people there uh, reflects a culture we're comfortable with. But you argue in Uncomfortable that believers who accept the uncomfortable and even the awkward aspects of Christianity in the context of the local church— they're the ones who are going to see the church grow most significantly and the gospel advanced most powerfully. Talk about why that's the case.
3: Yeah, you know, I, I think I first and foremost, I've just seen it in my own life. I've seen how, you know, when I've been tempted to attend churches that fit me perfectly and kind of fit my unique tastes and preferences and, and checklist items, you know, it's comfortable and it's it's easy, but I don't really grow. And, you know, I think it just got me thinking, um, cause I'm going to a church now that isn't my perfect church. And it's, it's actually very different from, I think the picture I would paint mm-hmm. of my dream church in a lot of ways. So it's been really stretching and, and uncomfortable, but it's been a church where I've definitely seen growth uh, in my life. And I think my wife would say the same. And so I just, I realized, you know, it's true of so much in life that we grow the most when we're in our when we're out of our comfort zone, when we're being stretched and pushed and we don't grow as much when we're just comfortable. And so I think that the same is true for our spiritual lives in and, and church. So I'm really trying to encourage people to just kind of break out of that that consumeristic temptation to to want to go to the church that fits you the best and actually take up the challenge of just you know embracing the discomfort of a church that may not fit your all your checklist items but is going to kind of force you to to stretch a bit and lean on lean on God more rather than leaning on yourself.
2: Yeah. It sounds like you're uh, encouraging your readers to to transfer the focus from me and my preferences to where the Lord would lead me in order that yeah. I and the people I'm in community with will grow in a way that I I otherwise would not.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's really just a a change of posture.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm And I
3: think in our our kind of American culture, which is so individualistic and and, and consumeristic, it's easy for us to just have that be our default posture, you know, that everything should be about me and, and kind of how things fit me and my needs. But I think that can be a really damaging posture for us in terms of growth and and spirituality and faith. And I think we do need to be more compelled by Jesus and what he would have for us and what he calls us to do rather than necessarily what we want for ourselves.
2: Let's talk about the word uncomfortable, since it it uh, uh, is so prominently featured in your book, the mm-hmm. title and the two sections. Uh, describe mm-hmm. what uncomfortable is and what it isn't. For example, someone who is in a church that really questions whether or not the teaching is biblically sound, where there might be a, an element of, of congregational abuse. Describe what uncomfortable means right. and kind of the parameters of that. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, it's a really good question. What I'm not meaning when I talk about uncomfortable is kind of, um uh, theologically errant teaching or unorthodoxy, heresy. Like mm-hmm. that's not, that's not discomfort. That's just wrong, you know. <laughs> that's just bad. So I, I'm not talking about that as much as just kind of the, the things that are more in the tastes and preferences category that Aren't your preferred style, or, you know, maybe you're an introvert, so you don't like communities that are super extroverted or different, different personality things, things that aren't like yeah. core essential gospel issues necessarily. Like, I wouldn't recommend staying in an uncomfortable church that's heretical. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> not. But, um, but I think we should be more willing to stay in a church that is uncomfortable because it doesn't have, you know, all the styles of music that we like or the, the preaching style isn't our favorite or, you know, the people around us don't look exactly like us and there's there's, you know, not as many people in our age group. Like all of those things, you know, are challenges and they're gonna make church going perhaps more uncomfortable for you. But I think they're also real opportunities for you to kind of grow and to to shift your posture, as I was saying earlier, yeah. to one of kind of a me orientation to an other's orientation? How can we learn to be a community that, that serves each other more than we serve ourselves?
2: I really like that your book is divided into two parts, but you begin in the first part with uncomfortable faith. I think it may say a lot about the, the kind of, of faith walk we have, um, if we're willing to or, and we've learned to live with the uncomfortable, because as you pointed out in this first part of the book, um, that w- the cross is uncomfortable, that holiness can be comfortable, that there are truths mm-hmm. in Scripture that are uncomfortable. So if we recognize yeah. that there are some challenges for us as an individual follower of Jesus, then it shouldn't be altogether surprising that as part of a community, there are going to be aspects that are uncomfortable as well.
3: Mm-hmm. I think I I wanted to lay that that first mm-hmm. part of the book out as kind of the framework for before getting into the the intricacies of church and and the community aspect, which can be uncomfortable. Yeah, there's there's real kind of central core aspects of what it means to follow Jesus that are costly and and um, inconvenient and uncomfortable. You know, it, it's a faith built around a cross, a guy who died on this brutal. Execution device in the first century, and and he calls us to take up our own crosses and follow him. And so, the very nature of that should lead us to realize that this is not a comfortable path. You know, the the path of following Jesus is costly. And I think too often, especially in cultures where Christianity is is very common and it's just kind of the the cultural religion, I think we can forget that it's the essence of it is costly and. We've become really comfortable in America because Christianity is just ubiquitous. Um, but I, I really think it's important that we we realize that the heart of it is is a, the cost of discipleship mm-hmm. and kind of and, and being willing to sacrifice some of the comforts that we might want for ourselves, but we should sacrifice sacrifice them for the sake of the gospel.
2: Now you've answered this question in part, but why do you think Christians are um, constantly searching to find that dream church? Is it because we have wrong expectations? Our focus is uh, away from, as you've just described, this the cost of discipleship. Why do you think it's the uh, kind of the, the feature mm-hmm. of of looking for a church?
3: Yeah, you know, I think part of it is just the again the the air we breathe in American culture is consumerism. So, mm-hmm. at, you know, from a young age, everything. Has been about like choose the, the the brand of clothes that you know fits your preferences. Choose the type of toothpaste that is your particular style of preference. Like everything is about giving us more choices, and you know, in, in the technology today is making it even more amplified. Like we can curate our own social media um, feeds to our perfect taste and preferences and liking and we can choose apps on our phone that are just just exactly what we want. And so everything revolves around this idea of choice and tailoring things perfectly to what what I want and my unique style and preference. And so of course we're going to have that approach to church. It's just natural that we're going to start thinking about how would I how would I build my perfect church if I if I could pick the perfect church for me just just like everything else in life I can curate and kind of yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. uh you know put together just to my liking so i think that's why we do it and and church is just such a powerful part of our lives i think we have strong feelings about it and it's it's charged with emotion it's it's wrapped up with our spiritual growth and so i think we we want it to be perfect we we long for it to be perfect and i think in some sense that's not a bad thing because As scripture describes, like, there will be a moment in Revelation 21 where the bride of Christ, the church is perfect, finally. Like, Christ will perfect the church. uh, But right now, she's, she's an imperfect bride and she's messy and she's frustrating. And so I think we long, we long for that kind of eschatological future moment where where we're, we're one with Christ and, and all as well.
2: Mm. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Brett McCracken. His book is titled Uncomfortable, The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing a conversation with Brett McCracken. He is a senior editor for the Gospel Coalition and the author of Hipster Christianity and Gray Matters. We're talking about his latest book, Uncomfortable, The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community, which has a foreword by Russell Moore. We were talking about uh, how preference often uh, guides our decision making as far as churches uh, go. And sometimes churches respond to the, the potential for parishioners in the same way. Uh, many churches have resorted to the seeker-sensitive movement that attracts people by being cool and comfortable and convenient. Is it possible for churches to thrive by embracing the more difficult aspects of Christianity, as opposed to uh, pandering to what they believe those who are are considering them for home uh, might uh, might prefer? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, and I think yes. I think there's definitely there's definitely possibility that a church. And it's kind of counterintuitive and paradoxical, but I actually think that the Church is better off in the 21st century if it embraces and is, is kind of forthright and open about the cost of following Jesus, rather than kind of trying to hide that part and, and, and putting, like, the cost of discipleship kind of under the rug and and focusing on, you know, kind of selling Christianity as, as if it were just this comfortable kind of your best life now, self-actualization mm-hmm. sort of thing, like, that's disingenuous. That that, that that kind of draws people in under the guise that Christianity is one thing, and then, you know, they learn or they're surprised later that it's actually a, a costly thing to follow Jesus. So I think, you know, churches are better off just being honest with that. And I actually think that um, younger people, millennials, they really value authenticity, They really value, they don't like um, being sold a bill of goods. They, They can see through that. They can see through disingenuous things, but they like authenticity. And I think a church that is just authentic and open and honest about, you know, hey, this this Christianity thing, this following Jesus thing, it's not going to be easy. It, it it asks us of things. It, it's about repentance. It's about holiness. It's about the cross. It's about doing life with uncomfortable people sometimes and serving others rather than serving ourselves. Like, that's what it is. Like, and, and if you want to be a part of it, then... We invite you to, and it's going to be a wonderful transformative thing for you, but it's going to be hard as well. And I think that's, I think that actually is going to be an approach that really resonates with the next generation um, who don't want to be sold something fake. They want Mm -hmm. something real, even if it's costly. I think they prefer that realness, and authenticity of it.
2: So how do you find a church that is that is right, uh, defining that as where God would have us, without being tempted to shop for our dream church? Where do we begin, and how do we engage in that process of seeking God's will and the community that He has for us to become a part of?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think that, first of all, you just need to be honest with yourself and, and evaluate, kind of, are you... Going about this as a shopper, as a consumer, and do you have like that list of preferences? And maybe look at those reflect reflect on those preferences. Are they on the level of like worship music style and like kids' ministry activities and all those things? Or are they are they on the level of like, is this a theologically sound church? Is it gospel-centered? Is Jesus the hero of this church? Are lives being transformed? but in this church can i can i see tangible evidence of people growing like those are the more important things to consider as you're looking for a church so really i think it's just a matter of kind of doing an audit of like what are the what are your checklist items and and making sure that they're kind of the more substantial like god-centered ones and not the me-centered ones
2: now um uh, how do you think um the way people view church has changed over the years. What are some new perspectives on church that you hope people will gain from reading your book, Uncomfortable?
3: Um, yeah, you know, I th- I think maybe a big one is just to start looking at church um, not as just this social kind of um, activity that's just one among many things that you do during your week. Like you go to church on Sunday and, and you leave and then, you know, it doesn't really have bearing on anything else in your life, but... I would like people to read this book and and come away seeing Christianity as this overarching paradigm that should mark every aspect of our lives. This this kind of embracing the uncomfortable, costly call of following Jesus and and being different in in this world. You know, part of part of following Christ is a willingness to be. Kind of alien and being a little strange and weird in our world, and and it's becoming increasingly, I think, weird in American culture to be a faithful Christian um, and and to to have it actually take substantial root in our lives in every aspect of our lives. So really, that's I think the the approach to church that I would like to see people come away with is is just this this bigger, fully orb,ed all enveloping mm-hmm. idea of of being a part of this, this eternal, um, you know, majestic thing that God is doing in the world through the church.
2: Now, one of the areas that you write about in Uncomfortable is uh, the subject of worship that can be as divisive in a congregation as Mm -hmm. just about anything else. Talk a little bit about um, the search for, uh, you know, the perfect worship in the church that I'm going to attend as opposed to um, embracing the fact that we are worshiping together as a community in a style that may not be the one I would select, but is meaningful because we're engaged in unity.
3: Yeah, I think I think that last part of your question is kind of the heart of it, is worship is such an opportunity for unity, and it, it, sh- it shouldn't be about me and my individual kind of preferences and whether I like this style of music or not, but it should be an opportunity to in humility, um, just kind of join arms and sing in unison with, with our, our fellow um, brothers and sisters in Christ in our, in our congregation. I think there's nothing more beautiful to me in terms of my experiences of church than kind of looking around a room and seeing a diversity of, of people, different ethnicities, different ages, different backgrounds, and we're all just passionately belting out these songs, like, um, for the sake of Christ, you know, to the glory of God. It's not about our individual stories as much as it, as it is about um, giving God the glory. And so I think worship is a great opportunity in, in kind of a narcissistic age that we live in where so much is made of ourselves and we can become so f- kind of full of ourselves and preoccupied with ourselves. Like, worship is this great, beautiful opportunity to kind of get outside of ourselves and to focus ourselves together together shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with others on God and on Christ and what He's done for us on the cross. So I think worship is such a beautiful opportunity for us to to kind of shape our hearts in a new posture that's less about me and more about God and more about serving each other.
2: Another of the um, subjects that you write about in the second part of your book, Uncomfortable Church, is the the subject of unity. What does unity in the fellowship of believers uh, known as the local church, what does that look like? And what is th- what is the goal in a diverse group mm-hmm. of people with different preferences, different backgrounds, different age groups? What does that unity look like?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the most uncomfortable things about church. And yet, I think it's one of the most essential things, too. You know, Jesus, he prays for unity. He prays for the church to be unified. And so I think we, if we're going to be obedient, we need to strive after that, too but you know it's so hard in in our culture today which is so divisive and you know everyone is yelling at each other on social media and you turn on the news and people are yelling at each other and we're just we're fracturing along all these divisive issues mm-hmm. And so one of, the, one of the reasons it's important is that it's just such a countercultural witness. Like, if the Church of Jesus Christ can model unity amidst diversity and in this world, in this society that is just finding it really hard to be unified, like, man, what a witness that can be, you know, something different, something hopeful— um, if we can embrace each other amidst our differences, love each other, worship alongside each other, you know, with every, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, you know, that's the, that's the image that, that we see uh, in Revelation. That's what we're striving for. That will be heaven. That will be what we're doing for eternity is this worship together amidst diversity. And so we need to practice that now. And I think the church, you know, can be a little bit of a foretaste of heaven. In today's um, dark and kind of depressing mm-hmm. polarized world, our our unity can be this this glimmer of hope and this kind of beautiful picture of what what heaven will be like, where mm. everyone, everyone is unified together um, in, in worship and praise of God.
2: Where Christ is the focus. Again, the book is titled yeah. Uncomfortable, The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community with a Forward by Russell Moore. Uh, yeah. Brett McCracken, thank you so much for talking with us and thank you for the book. Yeah, thank you so much. It's
3: been on chatting with
2: you. Appreciate it very much. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here in just a moment. We'll be back to wrap things up. Again, the book is Uncomfortable. It's published by Crossway. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, with all that's going on in the world, I thought a couple of good news stories might be in order. Uh, the firestorm in California has uh, resulted in so many deaths and the destruction of property uh, for so many families across uh, that state. I wanted to share this story out of Santa Rosa that's been much in the news. Um, they report um, in the, let's see, what's the uh, oh CBS, the local CBS station reports that with the deadly flames of the uh, Tubbs fire. And again, we're talking about Santa Rosa, California, bearing down on his property. Roland Tembo Hendo knew it was time to round up his family, his dogs and cats, and flee. But there simply was no room for the family's flock of goats. By 11.10, we could see the first of the flames across the valley, he wrote on his Facebook page. By 11.15, only five minutes later, they were growing larger and the winds went mad. We had loaded up the dogs and cats, but Odin, our stubborn and fearless Great Pyrenees, would not leave the goats. Well, Odin, living up in the uh, to the Norse god he's named after, of course the fictional with a small G, would not abandon the flock. Well, so the family reluctantly and with very heavy hearts watched Odin um, as they uh, departed, hoping that they would see him again, but knowing it was likely that he would not survive, nor would the sheep. Even under the best of circumstances, it is nearly impossible to separate Odin from the goats after after nightfall when he uh, takes over the close watch. Uh, From his sister, Tessa, apparently another dog. Uh, Hindle wrote that I made a decision to leave him. And I doubt uh, I could have made him uh, come with us if I tried. He apparently was quite committed to protecting the the goats. Well, the escape proved harrowing as the fire erupted along uh, Mark West Spring Road. The journey through the flames would prove deadly for one of Hindle's neighbors, Lynn Powell. But his family finally reached safety. It really was a matter of life and death. As they hurried away from the flames, cars behind us on Mark West Spring Road, he says, were pouring flames out of the windows as they roared down the road. He uh, wrote on his Facebook page later that morning when we had uh, outrun the fires, I cried, uh, sure that I had sentenced Odie to death, along with our precious family of bottle raised goats. Well, after the fire subsided enough for the Hindle family to return to their burned out home, They braced for the worst. We were able to make it back uh, to the smoldering wasteland of our forest. Handel wrote on his Facebook page, every structure is in ruins. Trees are still burning. But suddenly the goats appeared and raced toward the family. And there was Odin, fur burned, whiskers melted, limping on his right leg, The battle injuries suffered in uh, his desperate fight with the flames. Well, during the firestorm, Odin not only protected his flock, he also seemed to have adopted several baby deer who were huddled around him for safety. Odin has lived up to his namesake, Hindle said. Pray for him and his charges. He is our inspiration. If he can be so fearless in this maelstrom, surely so can we. Like many evacuees, Odin, Tessa and their goats were spending Sunday in an evacuation center, the Sonoma County Fairgrounds. The family set up a funding site to pay for Odin's medical care. Of course, there's lots of other needs as well in the Sonoma, um, Santa Rosa area, rather. Uh, but just kind of an inspirational story. Dog protected the flock, despite the maelstrom, as his owner put it, that was surrounding him and them. He was committed to taking care. Kind of reminds me of Pastor Appreciation Month where so many pastors' fur is singed, (laughs) and their whiskers um, have melted, and yet they remain to protect the flock in their charge. Thanks, pastors. Marcus Johnson, who's a wide receiver for the Philadelphia Eagles, said he was baptized in a North Carolina swimming pool on Thursday with the support of several of his teammates. He tweeted out a photo of the event. First time being baptized, he wrote. Corporate worship is a beautiful thing. Uh cleaned and reborn in Jesus name. Hashtag Wholeheartedly, Johnson tweeted on Thursday. Well, Johnson was baptized in Charlotte at the hotel where the team was staying across the, C- according rather to the CBS Sports. The Eagles beat the Carolina Panthers Thursday with a score of twenty-eight to twenty-three, but that mattered less than what happened in that pool that moment. Alongside Johnson during his baptism was quarterback Carson Wentz, tight end Zach Ertz, offensive guard Stefan Wniski or Wiesinski, Uh, Tight end Trey Burton, linebacker Jordan Hicks, and backup quarterback Nick Foles, among others. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported Chase Daniel, now a quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, told ESPN in December of 2016 when he was a backup quarterback for the Eagles that his team was by far the most spiritual team I've been on, end quote. Five teammates, linebacker Jordan Hicks, Michael Kendricks, and Kamu Gruger-Hill, wide receivers Paul Turner and David Watford, uh, were baptized in the Philadelphia Eagles recovery pool late last year, according to reports as well. So the Philadelphia Eagles have got it going on, not just on the field, but they, uh, they have priorities that uh, are worthy of being um, allotted. And finally, a Chinese space station will crash into Earth in a matter of months, and it could kill anyone who is standing beneath. That's the headline. An 8.5-ton Tiangong-1, or Heavenly Palace, satellite is now out of control it's doomed to plunge into the atmosphere, a top academic has warned. I expect it will come down a few months from now, late 2017, early 2018. Jonathan McDowell, a Harvard University astrophysicist, told The Guardian he previously warned that there was no way of telling exactly where the space station was going to plunge to Earth. You really can't steer these things, he said last year. Well, even a, a couple of days before it uh, re-enters, we probably won't know better Uh, Then six to seven hours plus or minus when it's going to come down, the station will reduce significantly in size as the Earth's atmosphere burns it up. However, large chunks of metal could still fall to Earth and injure or kill anyone standing uh, 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 beneath its impact site. A spokesperson for China's space agency said, based on our calculation and analysis, most parts of the space lab will burn up during falling or failing, depending on how you want to put it. But a huge chunk of metal could still rain down on unwitting victims. He added there will be lumps of about 100 kilometers or so, still enough to give you a nasty wallop if it hit you. Uh, As well as building a space station, it intends to eventually put one of its citizens on the surface of the moon. We're talking about China. In April, they vowed to send a to orbit Mars, land, and deploy a rover to explore the surface by 2020. However, I would like to think that their uh, space station, that's now a runaway space station, could be refined in such a way that it wouldn't threaten those of us who remain firmly planted on terra firma. So we'll uh, keep you posted. Uh, Just a reminder that uh, tomorrow's not promised to any of us. I hope you, like uh, these football players, have made preparation for uh, not just this life, but the one to come. Taking a look at some of what we're working on for the remainder of this week, we're going to talk uh, with Daniel Fusco this week. He has a new um, book out. By the way, he's the uh, pastor of Crossroads Vancouver. The book is titled. He's also a broadcaster here. His uh, new book is titled Upward, Inward, Outward: Love God, Love Yourself love others. I'm looking forward to talking with him about that. It's been a while since he's been on the program. And also we're going to have our annual Union Gospel Mission Radiothon with Bill Russell. Uh, always looking forward to the opportunity to support a local ministry of which Union Gospel Mission is uh, one that we, uh, we really appreciate. So that will be coming up this week as well. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Rice show and like us on Facebook.